So as I begin, I want to share a story of a, of a man who lives in India, and he applied for a job, a very prestigious company, and as things have it, there's a lot of people that lived in his area, and so a lot of people applied uh, for the job, about 200, 300 people for five positions, and so he shows up for the interview, and does a great job, knocks it out of the park, and as he's leaving, the interviewers say to him, now don't, tell, don't share the questions with anybody else, because we ask everyone the same questions, and we don't want them to know. So as he's leaving, he's walking out to the lobby, the next interviewer says, hey, come here. Uh, what, what do they ask you in the interview? And he says, well, I'm not allowed to tell you. He said, well, can you at least tell me the answers? He says, well, I guess I can do that. And so he proceeds to tell him the answers to the questions that he was asked. And so when he was in the interview, the first question that he was asked uh, was, when did India gain its independence? And he responded by saying, well, there are many things that happened. A lot of things took place, but ultimately in 1947, India gained its independence. The second question that he was asked uh, was, who is the father of the nation? To which he responded by saying, you know, it's really not f- fair to pick just one man or just one person. There was a lot of people, a lot of events took place, a lot of people made, it, made India what it is, and so I, I don't want to pick just one person. And then the third question he was asked was, is, is there a lot of corruption in India? In India? To which he responded by saying, the matter is under study. In fact, the prime minister has commissioned a delegation to do a massive research project. And once they get the information, I'll be able to let you know. And so he passes along these answers, just the answers to the guy. He just says, the answer to the first question is, you know, a lot of things took place, 1947. Second answer uh, is a lot of, you know, you can't just pick one man. There's a lot of people that played a part in what happened. And then the third answer was, you know, uh, the prime minister is commissioning a delegation to study what's going on. And so this guy walks into the interview very confident. He says, I know what I'm going to say. I know the answer is it's going to be awesome. I'm going to get this job. And as he sits down, the interviewers say, now before we get to the interview, there's a few things wrong on your form I just want to ask you about. Uh, first is, what is your birthday? To which he responds by saying, well, a lot of things took place. There were many events, but ultimately, 1947, the interviewers look at him a little strange, and he says, okay, the next question is, uh, let's see here, what is your father's name? And he responded by saying, well, who am I just to pick one man? There's a lot of people that, took, that played a part in this. A lot of th- people helped, and I just, so I can't just pick one person. To which the interviewers respond to him by saying, are you crazy? To which he responds by saying, well, the prime minister has commissioned a delegation and they're going to look into the matters and I'll, and I'll tell you. Now, why do I share that story, number one, because it's hilarious. But number two, there's nothing quite like being confident that things are going to go the way you want them to go, only to find out that that is not at all how things are going to end up. And that is what we're seeing here as we continue our time in the book of Esther. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to chapter 8. If you don't, there's a black one around you where you can read along with us. Uh, If you're new with us, I won't be able to give you a full recap of what's happening, but here's where we are so you can pick up the story with us today. Esther takes place in the kingdom of Persia around 480-ish BC. Esther is the queen of Persia now at this time. She becomes queen uh, through a series of unfortunate events, uh, and she's queen to King Xerxes or his Hebrew name Ahasuerus. Uh, So she's one of the main characters in the story. Mordecai, who is her cousin and her legal guardian, is also one of the main characters in the story. And long story short, this man named Haman becomes into power. He's second in command to the king. And so he commands everybody to bow to him. Mordecai won't do this. And so when this man finds out that Mordecai is Jewish, instead of just dealing with Mordecai, he kind of manipulates the, the king into signing a decree that will allow them to wipe out all of the Jewish people in the Persian kingdom. And so Mordecai goes to Esther and says, you've got to go to the king. You've got to do something about this. And so they, they fast for three days and they pray. And then Esther courageously goes to the king without being invited, which could have gotten her killed. Uh, but he spares her her life. He wants to know what, what is troubling her. And so she throws a couple of banquets for the king and for Haman and for her. And at the second banquet, she is finally going to ask and confront the king about this edict that is going to wipe out the Jewish people. And so she basically says, here's what's happened. And Haman is the one that kind of instigated all of it. And so if you 
were here last week in chapter 7, we saw that the king is furious because he's now he finds out that Esther is also Jewish, which he didn't know at the time. And so he leaves the room. He's trying to decide what he wants to do. Haman stays in the room, is bowing and begging at Esther's feet to give him mercy and forgiveness. The king comes back into the room, and then he gets mad and furious at Haman for violating the queen because custom was you were never allowed to be left alone in a room with the queen. You were never allowed to be near her, and you certainly were not allowed to touch her. And so he gets killed because the king is mad at her, ultimately also for violating the queen. And this is where we pick up the story. It's a dramatic turn of events. Because again, up until a couple of days ago in the story, we're thinking things are not looking well for the Jews. Haman is super confident. And now things are starting to turn. And so chapter 8, verse 1, here's where the story picks up. It says, that same day, King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. And so Haman was a traitor to the throne. He was executed that same day, and all of his estate and possessions and belongings were transferred over to Esther. This is, again, the next step of kind of the the reversal of this story. Uh, Her Jewishness and her relationship to Mordecai also helps Mordecai uh, because she's related to him and she's Jewish, and so the king welcomes Mordecai into his presence. Verse 2. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. And so Mordecai now gets again the ring that Haman had before, essentially getting promoted into Haman's position. And again, this great reversal continues. And this is great news if you've been following along. The queen is going to be spared. Even Mordecai is going to be spared. The only problem we still have to deal with is that the Jews are still going to be killed, right? The edict is still out there that in a couple of months, all of the Jews would be wiped out. And so now Esther and Mordecai have to try to address the situation. Verse 3, then Esther uh, addressed the king again. She fell at his feet, wept, and, be- and begged, him, uh, begged him to revoke the evil of Haman the Agagite and his plot he had dis- uh, devised against the Jews. The king extended the gold scepter toward Esther, so she got up and stood before the king. And so although this is happening and although she's already in the king's presence, uh, she has to be very diplomatic in her request about what to do. Because remember, although this was Haman's idea, the king is the one who still signed off on it. And so we see that this is an, another courageous moment for Esther because the king extended his gold scepter, which means the queen was asking or requesting something from him without first getting his permission that she could speak. But she, again, she's not just about her own well-being or Mordecai's well-being, right? She's after the good of the Jewish people. And she also, again, has to put the blame on, on Haman so that the king does not become embarrassed or angry that, again, it was also his fault for signing this decree. And ultimately, again, what we see here is that Esther is working on behalf of God's people. Again, she's safe, Mordecai is safe, but the God's people are not. And so I say that to, 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 to pause for a second and make this very important point, and that is that how we treat the people of God matters. How we treat one another, especially in our day as followers of Jesus, it matters. And I don't know if you're like me. Uh, maybe you're a better Christian than I am, but it can be easier for me to love, forgive, and extend grace to people who are not Christians, to non-Christians. Like, I, wanna, I want them to see and experience Jesus. I want them to, to know Him, and I know, you know I'm a reflection of Him, so I, I, I can be quick to do that. However, if a fellow brother or sister, if a fellow Christian needs grace or forgiveness or has wronged me or needs me to go out of my way to help them, I'm not always as quick to do that, right? I don't know if you're like me, but I can be more judgmental. I can be more harsh to fellow Christians 
than I am to non-believers. And what's interesting is, again, if you're a follower of Christ, you know we're supposed to love God and love, all the people, uh, love other people. And you may assume, assume that if we had to pick, like, who do we love more, non-Christians or Christians? Well, clearly, it's non-Christians because they don't yet know Jesus. When in fact, that's the opposite of what we see throughout the New Testament. I'll just give you one quick example. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, it'll be on the screen. The Apostle Paul is writing, and all of chapter 6 is about this idea of carrying one another's burdens and loving each other. And he ends it by saying this in verse 10. He says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. That yes, we're supposed to love and care for other people, but this should absolutely be evident in how we love and care for one another. This is important for us, maybe in years like now where it's election season, and so we can see fellow believers, maybe they're voting for Trump or for Sanders or for Warren or for Buttigieg or all these other people, right? We can say, well, I'm not going to vote for them. How dare you? We can be quick to judge them. We can be quick to slander them, to gossip about them. Maybe, you know, following Christ, there are very clear things about what honors God and what dishonors God. And yet, at the same time, there is a lot of freedom. And so there can be many times in your life and my life, based off our past histories, maybe something we've studied, that the Holy Spirit convicts us that we should or should not do something uh, that's not necessarily sinful, but it would be for us. And then we can look and judge other Christians for doing the thing that we don't do, and we assume, well, if they just love Jesus like I do, they wouldn't do that. What we're doing in that moment is we are not especially holding up love and care for other people. What we see here is Esther's example, and it translates for us that how we treat the people of God matters. We have to extend grace, forgiveness, and love and mercy to one another, and not just to non-Christians, but for those that know Jesus as well. And so with that, we'll continue the story, verse 7 of chapter 8. Here's what happens next. Uh, King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Look, I have given Haman's estate to Esther, and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews, and seal it with the royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. And so again, because Haman attacked the Jews and violated Queen Esther, he was hanged. And what the author is trying to do here is he's trying to show us what happens to those who oppose God and God's people, what ultimately will happen to everybody in that situation. And so now he invites Queen Esther and Mordecai to write their own decree. What's interesting here is that any time a king has written a decree or signed off on one, it cannot be revoked. So he cannot go and say, well, this decree that was going to wipe out the Jews is no longer going to happen. That cannot be a thing. So what has to happen instead is a new decree combating the one that was originally written must come into place. And so that's what he's asking them to do. Verse 9, on the 23rd day of the third month, that is the month of Sivan, the royal scribes were summoned. Everything was written exactly as Mordecai commanded for the Jews to the satraps, the governors, and the officials of the 127 provinces from India to Kush. And so again, this is going out to the entire kingdom. The edict was written for each province in its own script, for each ethnic group in its own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in King Ahasuerus' name and sealed the edicts with the royal signet ring. He sent the documents by mounted couriers who rode fast horses bred in the royal stables. Now, just to give you some context about what's going on here, that this edict is being written two months and ten days after Haman's original edict was written. And again, again, shows us the reversal of what's going on is now Mordecai is writing a, uh, an edict that's supposed to preserve life, 
where Haman originally wrote one that was supposed to cause death. And so here's what he writes. Here's the edict, verse 13. The king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the peoples so the Jews could be ready to avenge themselves against their enemies on that day. And so again, this reversal continues. This edict is written in the exact opposite way of Haman's. Haman originally wrote... Again, that on this same day, <clears throat> that the Jews could be killed, not only just the men, but also the men and women, and, <coughs> and everything could be stolen from them. They kind of plunder their resources, if you will. And so now he's writing the opposite, that, that now everybody, all the Jews can be uh, defended, and if you come and attack the Jews and they kill you, they have the right to take over your money and your possessions. So again, it's the exact opposite of Haman's edict. Now, again, the, the primary purpose of this edict is not for the Jewish people to go out and kill people just for the fun of it, but only to defend themselves, right? If you come and attack them, they were going to come defend themselves. But even then, there's still some tension as we read this text, because it, I think it does bring to mind the times in the Old Testament uh, where God uh, even allows or even sometimes commands the Israelites to go kill and attack other nations. Now, again, in this particular situation, uh, God's name is never mentioned in Esther. We don't know what God, God's perspective necessarily is on the situation. And so this is not a command by God to go and do it, but it still brings to mind those situations. And so the question is, what do we do with them? Like, what do we do with those situations where people like to say, well, see, the God of the Old Testament is vengeful, and I can't believe he would do this. What I want to do is I want to take two minutes really quick, and we can't get into all of it, but just try to, to try to the quickest and the best of my ability, explain a little bit as to why that God is actually somewhat justified in this. And what we see here in, in, in Esther and throughout the Old Testament is that God chooses to make a people, which just happens to be the Israelites, not because of anything that they would do, not because they are great or that they are awesome, but simply out of his grace. He chose a people through which a nation would be born, which was the Israelites, and out of which the Savior of the entire world would come. So the nation of Israel is not just about themselves, it is about uh, the goodness of the entire world. And so because the Messiah, ultimately Jesus, would come from this nation, what that means is that any threat to this nation would actually also be a threat to God and his justice and mercy for all of humanity. And so the part of the reason, this is not all of the reason, but this is just part, part of the reason that God allows and even at some times commands the Israelites to attack other nations is for their own survival and well-being. Now again, what's interesting here is that even the Israelites were also punished when they began to act like other nations. When they began to uh, uh, involve themselves in some of the evilness and wickedness of other nations, they were also punished. In fact, the reason that they are in Persia right now, in exile, is because they have done that yet again. So again, to make clear, it's not that God loves the Israelites or there's something special about their ethnicity or their race or their geography that makes them special, but it's for the sake of the entire world that he chose the people from, the, from which the Messiah would come. And why this is relevant is that we have to remember that in certain parts of the, in the Old Testament of the Israelites' story, God would command them to make war and to fight against other nations, otherwise they would not have survived. 
But if they didn't do that, they wouldn't have survived. And they also lived in a geographical specific area of the world of which if they were wiped out, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, could not and would not come. It actually would have been a bad thing, not just for the Israelites, but for everybody. And so that being said, the question then becomes, well, how does that impact us today? Like, what are we supposed to do today? Because the church's survival, uh, first of all, is not geographical, right? There's Christians all over the world, uh, so that's different. And also the Messiah has already come, so that's different. So we're in a very different situation than the Israelites. And so the question then becomes, what do we do when people mistreat us? What do we do when people hurt us? How are we supposed to respond? Are we supposed to respond with anger and animosity and maybe even violence like the Israelites sometimes had to? Or is there another way? You see, what we see is that with the coming of Jesus, Jesus ultimately came to do what? To defeat sin and death on our behalf. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of what God has done through Christ, that Christ came, lived the perfect death we could not live, and through his death, burial, and resurrection, anybody who trusts and follows and believes in him can receive the grace and mercy of God, not because they deserved it, just like the Israelites didn't, but simply out of his Grace, the gospel is the good news is that anybody, no matter your, 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 na- your nationality, your ethnicity, where you're from, what you have done, all of us receive the goodness and grace of God. In other words, Jesus has become the men, women, and children that we see in this passage and others, that he has become gladly the sacrifice on our behalf. So what this means is, how should we fight, if you will, our enemies today? What do we do when people mistreat us or even threaten us? Here's what Jesus tells us to do. We see this in Matthew chapter 5 in his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we'll see, it'll be on the screen. Here's what he says, verse, uh, verse 43. He says, you have heard it said, love your enemy, in, or sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? That's what everybody's supposed to do. That's what, you know, that's, that's human nature. Everybody does that, right? But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles, and that's those who are not following God, do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect." In other words, he's saying this is what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to extend love, grace, and forgiveness because this is what I am doing for you. In other words, here's the point of what we see of how, how as followers of Christ, we're supposed to respond today when people mistreat us, when things don't go as we want. Here's how we should, what we need to remember. That love is our greatest weapon. Love is our greatest weapon. Not uh, maybe bullying somebody, not trying to out-intellectualize or argue with somebody, not trying to be perfect to show you, hey, if you follow Jesus, you never do anything wrong. That's not love. How we love people actually determines whether or not they will be impacted by God. Now, as I say that, you're like, okay, I've heard that before. You're the pastor. You're like, you got to say that. And maybe that sounds kind of cheesy to you. And so maybe to make this a little bit more real, let me give you an example of a time where I heard something that I thought was cheesy and or I thought you had to say that. And so I didn't really believe it until I experienced it. Uh, and so before I say this, let me just say, and be honest, be a personal, honest example, so you can judge me, but remember, love, okay? So don't be, don't be too hard on this. Uh, I, for whatever reason, like most guys, I always wanted to have a son. I grew up with two brothers, so it was just the three, you know, three boys, and then I had a really great father who died when I was 19, and so I always wanted to have a son that I could you know, be like a father to him, uh, the way that he was a father to me, and, and all that sort of thing. And we, Christina even already had a boy name, and we were going to give his middle name after my dad's middle name, all this sort of thing. And so when Christina came, pre- became pregnant with our first, I really wanted a son. And we go, we find out, you know, we're having a girl, 
And if I could be completely honest, I was a little disappointed. I was disappointed. And it's not because I didn't want to ever have a girl, but I'm thinking, well, if I have a girl now and we have another child and the other child's a girl, like, what if I never can have a boy? Like, that would kind of stink, right? And so I, I didn't say this out loud or anything, but when you, when you, obviously, when you find out you have a daughter, you know, I had some other friends and guys that were uh, fathers and they had daughters and they all said the same thing. Daughters are awesome. They're like, girls are awesome. They're the greatest thing. And I used to always think, well, you have to say that. Like, it's your kid. Like, you're not going to go around being like, this stinks, right? You're going to say that, right? And so I'm like, that's great. And I know I'm going to love my daughter, all this sort of thing. Um, but I was still a little, a little disappointed. And so finally, they comes, you know, Christina, you know, we go to the hospital. Christina has, uh, gives birth to our daughter, Finley. And let me just tell you, the millisecond, the, like, I don't even, I can't even tell you how quick it was. The second I laid my eyes on that girl, you know what I thought? I thought, this is awesome. I thought, I'm not going to trade her for the world. I said, boys stink. Like, who wants a boy? This girl is amazing, right? That's why, legitimately, once I, I was like, man, I would do anything for this girl. She's turning five uh, in a, about a month and a half. And let me just tell you, she is incredible. She is loving. She is sweet. She has made me a better husband. She's made me a better man. She is amazing, right? I wouldn't trade her for anything. Now, when she's 13, maybe another thing, but right? But I experienced, I was like, man, this is true. She is awesome. She is incredible. And we need to remember that this is what it is for love, right? If you want to impact and make a difference in somebody else's life, it's not about trying to make them feel bad. It's not about telling them how all the ways that they're sinning and all the things they need to do. It's not about telling them the way that they need to vote. It's about loving and caring for one another. And that, that is how we make a difference in the world, right? That is how we make a difference in God's kingdom today. Now, that being said, trying to, I'm going to tie this back to the text real quick. One of the things we also see as we read this story, and particularly in chapter 8, and we see Mordecai's response, one of the things that we see here is this, that Jesus is a better Mordecai. One of the things that we see particularly in chapter 8 is that Jesus is a better Mordecai. Perhaps you're not familiar with this type of statement, but throughout the New Testament, uh, many of the kind of the key figures, central figures of the New Testament are often referred to as what is called types of Christ. In other words, that they somehow, in some shadowy way, in some falling short way, but they, they point us to the better Messiah who would come and do things that they could not accomplish. And so in the book of Esther, for example, uh, for example, for example, I don't know why I said that twice. For example, uh, Mordecai and Esther are both types of Christ. They both uh, emulate and, and, and point towards Jesus, who's going to ultimately fulfill things even better than they could. And so, for example, even in chapter 8, here is what we see in Mordecai. What we see here is that the Jews couldn't save themselves, right? They're in a bad predicament. There's nothing that they can do. And so Mordecai and Esther become their earthly savior, right? They become a way to kind of save them for what they're going to experience, and yet what we see is that Jesus is not just an earthly Savior, but He's a heavenly Savior who didn't just come for one group of people, but came for the entire world. See, what we see in chapter 8 is that Mordecai is sentencing death. You fight the Jews, you will be killed. And yet Jesus came to save people from death. What we see here in Esther chapter 8 is that Mordecai is allowing people to be killed for their sin. If you come and do this, you will die. And yet Jesus came to die and to be killed for our sin. What we see is that without Mordecai, many people would have endured deadly human wrath. And without Jesus, all of us would endure deadly eternal wrath. What we see here is that Mordecai is offering a temporary solution. We are going to fight back. And yet Jesus offers a once and for all solution, that I'm going to do this one thing that will be good for all of humanity for all of time, for all of humanity of all and all of time. And so that being said, let's finish the story 
Uh, Esther chapter 8, verse 14. I'm sorry, I finished the chapter for this morning. Here's how the chapter ends. Verse 14. The couriers rode out in haste on their royal horses at the king's urgent command. The law was also issued in the fortress of Susa. So this new edict that they had just written is going out quickly all throughout the empire. Uh, issued in Susa, which was the capital, uh, is no doubt is trying to show us that, that Mordecai is, uh, is kind of confirming his position in the kingdom, right? They, uh, he was celebrated in chapter 8 for a, kind of a thwarting and assassination attempt against the king. And so it's kind of showing that he is rising in power and other people are seeing that. Verse 15, uh, Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal purple and white with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced and the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor. Right, so the city of Susa celebrates. Now, we're not told why. So again, one of the tricky things about the book of Esther is we're not, we're not told why people do what they do, um, but they celebrate. And it could be because they really liked Mordecai. It could be because if you remember way back in chapter 3, when this edict was originally written, a lot of the city was confused, probably thinking that if the king could wipe out the entire Jewish people, what if he wipes out the, the people that I know and people that I am related to. So for whatever reason, people are excited. And the point that the author is trying to make here is that the welfare of the Jews also means the welfare of everybody else. Right? The welfare for those of us today who are followers of Christ is actually the welfare of our cities. Why? Because if we are doing what God has called us to do, which is to honor Him and to love others, then our impact in our communities will be positive. Right? We'll be generous, we'll be forgiving, we'll be loving, we'll care for those who are in a difficult spot. The welfare of those who actually follow and embody Jesus is actually good for everybody involved. And the chapters uh, 18, or sorry, 8 ends with this. In every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his law reached, joy and rejoicing took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday. And many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because of, the fear, because of the fear of the Jews had overcome them. So what we see here is this edict goes out. Now, next week you're going to want to come back because we've got to see how this is actually going to play out. Uh, but, but what we see here is quite interesting, right? Because even up to just a couple of days before, according to the timeline of this story, people were, like not on the team, uh, were not team Jew, right? They were, they were looking for ways to kill them. They were looking for ways to kind of take their resources after they wiped them out, all these sorts of things. And then for whatever reason, right, they go from we're going to destroy the Jews to now being on their team. Right? They were like, oh, we can't wait to do this. To so like, oh, no, we are on their team. Now, the question is, what caused that? Right? Was it a true religious conversion? Did people kind of see like, oh, the, the God of Israel is powerful. Like, he stopped this sort of thing. Like, we want to be, we want to be a part of that. Was it a true religious experience? Uh, was it uh, maybe more out of fear, right, that people are just following whoever's in power at that time? And so now the, the Jewish people and Mordecai and Esther seem to be gaining a lot of steam, and so we just want to be on their, on their side, and so we're going to support them. We are not told, but we are told that through a series of events, many people have now come to support and be a part of the Jews in what they are doing. And if I could maybe, if I could kind of tie this into what does this mean for us today, uh, here's what I would say, that the invitation for us is the same. The invitation to follow Christ for us is the very same as it was for them uh, when Mordecai and Esther kind of led this great reversal of roles. In other words, um, I think sometimes if I could end maybe today, maybe our time in this space, I can think of maybe no better thing, better thing to say than this, and that is there is no bad reason to come to Christ. There is no bad reason to come and see and submit yourself and experience the goodness and the relationship and the grace that God has for you. 
And maybe you, I think a lot of us, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, I think a lot of us downplay our experience of coming to know him. We kind of view how we met and experienced Jesus as less than or as doesn't really count. And so we kind of view ourselves as like not as, not where we should be. Let me just give you a couple examples. Perhaps you're a follower of Jesus this morning and you initially or originally came to Christ because life was really hard for you. You were sad, you were weak, maybe you were battling depression, you had a lot of things happen to you outside of your control. And so you were upset and God and his grace met you in that moment that you experienced the grace and forgiveness of love of the Father that you may have never have experienced from any human person in this life, right? And so you might think, it's great that I'm a follower of Jesus, but it took my life being terrible for me to actually realize that. Like if I was a better person, I wouldn't have had to wait till my life being awful for God to, for me to realize I needed Jesus in my life, right? So you can downplay the fact of how you came to know Christ. Or maybe you're, maybe you're kind of on the other side of the spectrum. Maybe you came to Christ after making a ton of terrible decisions, right? You, you did a lot of bad things, a lot of things you shouldn't have, and you realized that you were broken, you realized that your life was messed up, you realized that you didn't have all together, and so you, you gave your life to Christ, you experienced the grace and forgiveness that he offers, and so you think, yes, it's good that I'm following Jesus, but, you know, I shouldn't, have, I, shouldn't have, I shouldn't have had to made so many bad decisions to get to this point. And so, yes, God loves me. Yes, God cares for me. But, like, my, my status on, like, the Christian totem pole is at the bottom because I did a lot of terrible things. And if I was a better person, I wouldn't have waited to do all those terrible things to come to Jesus, right? So you might downplay your experience with Christ that way. Or maybe your story is similar to mine, right? Maybe you grew up in a church and you had a lot of great examples of, what, of who Jesus was and how uh, he loves us and cares for us. And so you can think, well, I met Jesus as a young kid, and I've been following him for most of my life, and I'm not perfect, but I've never done these any, anything terrible. So, you know, you could look at me and say, well, your experience of meeting Jesus isn't that, you know, I don't have this really amazing story, and so uh, it's what a big deal of it. Like, you had everything in your life went well for you, so of course you believe in Jesus, right? What happens is we can downplay how we met Christ when the reality of the situation is God is using those very things to bring you to him. Listen, there is no bad reason to come to Jesus. And if you are here this morning and you do not yet know and know the grace and mercy that he has for you, you need to understand that God has you where he has you for a reason, that God is using those series of events in your life for a reason, and you are not a second-class citizen. You are not less than because of what God is using through his spirit to draw you to himself. There is no bad reason to come to Christ. And so as we end our time here in this space, as we move to a bigger space where there's more room, we need to remember that this is what it's about. It's not about getting a bigger church. It's not about having more people come. It's not about, oh, this is so cool. It's about Jesus and helping as many people as possible. Our mission at New City Church, and it's on that wall, and you can look at it one more time before we move, is to help people meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. And we do not care what it takes to help people see that. We don't care how people vote. We don't care how people, what people look like. We don't care what's happened to them. We don't care what they have done. It's all about what Christ has done for us. And there is never a bad reason. There is never a bad time to experience who he is. Let's pray.